Well, I want you to take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 17. 1 Kings, chapter 17. And let me uh, just say a a few words. During the, the past few weeks, we have had several matters of crisis in our our church family. Uh, Some have lost their loved ones. Uh, Others uh, have family members who are uh, maybe walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, Some are, in fact, too many are facing long struggles with illness and frightening illnesses. I recently received a text from David Brooks asking me to pray for his younger brother, <clears throat> Jesse. And uh, there were three of uh, the brothers uh, in, in David's family. <clears throat> Jesse has just learned that he has about a year to live. And uh, he's younger than David, but he, he has many places where cancer has just invaded his body. And nobody likes the word cancer, but there are certain uh, aspects or certain kinds of cancer that are particularly uh, frightening and aggressive, and he has <clears throat> that kind of cancer. The other day I saw Sally Burke. Uh, Sally is a former NFC uh, parent, and um, I saw her at Gold's Gym, and, and uh, she asked me to pray for her son Bob who graduated from NFC in 1995. Holly, you may remember Bob Burke, but Bob recently has discovered that he has a a brain tumor. And uh, this is a particular blow to their family because uh, her daughter, Natalie, has had a battle uh, with cancer herself, uh, thankfully, and, and praise the Lord that she is on a victorious side of it now. But <clears throat> she, is, she is doing much better. You heard us this morning uh, offering a prayer request for Gary Singletary's mom. And I think I see Donna uh, back there today. And Gary is with his mom. And it doesn't matter um, what condition mom is in, whether she's improving or whatever it may be. It's still a serious concern. David Crow, <clears throat> who is here this morning, David is in a battle of his own. Uh, we have told you about David's um, recent surgery, uh, cancer surgery, and now he has to deal with those treatments concerning cancer, and, and the, <clears throat> the outcome is still uncertain regarding uh, David's uh, situation. Uh, but certainly, he is in a, a time of, of family crisis. If you're, if you're a part of a family, <clears throat> you know what it means to be in a family crisis. Uh, Families have crisis moments. Families have crisis times. There's no question about it. There are times of family crisis. Now, because of these matters uh, and and those that you may be facing, I'm going to bring a version of a message that I preached probably, I don't know, maybe seven years ago. And it's from a series in the Old Testament, and uh, the title of this sermon is Bold Prayer, or a Bold Prayer. Now, in our text, we find the widow of Zarephath, the same woman who 
thought that she was preparing her last meal for her son and herself when God sent Elijah to her. We find this woman in yet another family crisis. Before, she and her son were preparing uh, for their last meal on earth, and God sent Elijah to her, and now more trouble comes. 1 Kings 17 and verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And the child took, and excuse me, Elijah took the child and came into him again, and he, uh, excuse me, and Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. Now here is a miracle that surrounded a family crisis. Here is a time when a woman had a, a problem, a real issue. And there was a, such a problem that she had lost her child. Her son had died. The nature of <clears throat> this crisis caused the woman to do what a lot of people do when trouble comes, when reversal comes, when tragedy hits our family. The first thing that she did was to examine her own life. She was asking herself, what is it that I have done? Isaiah had uh, a time like this when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. All of us have times when we examine our own lives because of something unusual or something big that has happened. Let me show you what happened to Isaiah. Isaiah 6 and verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, now here is is Elijah talking, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now what happened to Elijah was, or excuse me, Isaiah was, that when he really saw God, he really saw himself. Now there are many people who never really see themselves for who they really are, uh, 
because they've never really seen the Lord. They've never really comprehended the glory of the Lord. And had they comprehended the glory of the Lord, they would have seen themselves far more clearly than they were seeing themselves. Now for the widow of Zarephath, she too had a self-examination time, but it came because of a family crisis. Whenever a family crisis came to her, she examined herself. The family crisis, again, verse 17, after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. That simply means that her son died. Now, let's take a look at how she uh, had dealt with all of this. First of all, here's a lady who has had trouble before, and now she is experiencing more trouble. Now, the question is, hasn't she had trouble enough. You remember that during a famine, she was about to die. All she had was just a little handful of meal and some sticks, and she was going to make a, uh, <clears throat> a little uh, cake of some kind, a little piece of bread, and she and her son were going to share it, and that was going to be their last meal, and they were going to die. And you'll recall that <clears throat> Elijah, who had been sent there by the Lord, said, I understand what you're saying, but take that little bit of meal and that Uh, those sticks and that little bit of oil that you have. Go ahead and make a cake, but make it for me first. Make bread for me before you make it for yourself. Now, she had just said, I'm going to die. My son's going to die. We don't have any food. He said, that's fine. Make something for me. Now, he knew something that she didn't know. He knew that God had sent her there. So, this famine had taken uh, the widow of Zarephath, along with her son, to the brink of starvation. But Elijah uh, came along and her life was made better at the hand of the Lord through the instrument of Elijah. Now she's had a lot of trouble. You have to have a lot of trouble to come to the point of starvation. And now she has more trouble still. What is that trouble? Well, her son has now died. It seems like it's trouble upon trouble upon trouble upon trouble. Do you ever feel like that's the way your life is? Do you ever feel like that my life moves from one trouble to another trouble, while other people's lives move from one victory to another victory? You don't feel that way about your life. You feel the way <clears throat> that Job felt about his life at one point. In Job chapter 5 and verse 7, he says, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Now listen, all of life isn't trouble, but all lives have trouble. Now, you're not going to live in constant trouble. You haven't lived in constant trouble, but you're not going to live trouble-free either. There's no such thing as trouble-free. There's no such thing as a life that doesn't have some difficulties in it. All of life has troubles. Here's another thing that all of life has. All of life has extreme sorrow, extreme difficult times and sad times. Sometimes we think, find ourselves thinking about the sorrows to come. Have you ever done that? Have you ever imagined the sorrows to come? When I was a, a boy, <clears throat> when I was much younger, I used to think what it would be like to lose my parents. I used to, I, can you remember that? Can you remember when, when you were a child or you were a young teen or <clears throat> at some point, you would think to yourself, what would it be like to lose my mom or to lose my, my dad? And then one day, sure enough, my father passed away. 
And I, I experienced, and I, I, I remember thinking uh, clearly, I, I said, well, this is what it's like. I've always wondered what it's like to lose somebody that you depended on, somebody that you loved, somebody that you care about. And now I know <clears throat> this is what it's like. All of us have sorrows that we have had or are going to have. And sometimes <clears throat> we think about those sorrows. I often tell people who have lost their parents that it's hard to lose a mom or a dad. It's just a difficult thing. It doesn't matter how long they have lived. It's hard to lose a mom or a dad. It's certainly hard to lose a child. It's hard to lose a mate, a husband, or or a, uh, a wife. But that kind of sorrow is certain in life. It is going to happen. It's going to happen to you. It has happened to me. It's going to happen again. And there's going to come a day when I'm the reason for the sorrow. There's coming a day when I'm the one that somebody has lost. There's coming a day when you're the one that someone has lost. And there will be times, there will be times of extreme sorrow. That kind of sorrow is certain in life. It goes and it comes again and it goes away again and it comes again. It isn't it isn't the certainty of it that brings such heartache, but when it it comes, it's an at an untimely point, then our heart breaks a a little bit more when we lose somebody suddenly. Um, I, l- let me say this: I, I've I've lost uh, several who are close to me in <clears throat> in my family. I lost them in this order. I lost <clears throat> my father when he passed away, and then I lost the brother who was closest to me in age. He passed away. And then my mother uh, passed away. And then my father-in-law passed away. And then finally, my mother-in-law passed away. Some of them we have lost suddenly, and others we have lost over a period of time. And I know that the shock of sudden loss is very, very hard, but the drain of eventual loss could be even harder. But all of us face those times. Now, what happened with the widow of Zarephath when her son suddenly died? Well, she examined her life and she said, I've just got more trouble. I have extreme sorrow. And then she remembered her guilt. There was something that caused her to be guilty about something and wonder if the loss of her child was the reason, <clears throat> was, was because of that thing for which she was guilty. Look again at verse 18. And, he said to Eli- and she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Now, I have no idea what sin she was referencing here. I have no idea. I don't even have a way to hazard a guess. I can't tell, I I wouldn't even speculate and say, well, it was this or perhaps this or whatever. I I have no idea. But there had been some sin in her life that caused her to think that it may be that sin that caused her to have this tragedy in her life. It may be that sin that has brought about this difficulty. It may be that sin that for which maybe God was exacting some sort of 
of payback or, or revenge. How about you? <clears throat> what do you live under? Do you live under your own guilt or do you live under God's grace? Which one do you live under? If, if we decided today collectively that we're going to live under our own guilt, that is all of us are guilty and all of us are going to be guilty and we're going <clears throat> to all live on and dwell on our own guilt, the things that we have done that are so wrong. I want to tell you something, everyone in here be miserable. We'd have no sense of hope. But you, you have a choice. You can live <clears throat> under your own guilt or you can live by God's grace. Whenever something goes wrong, does your mind go back to, <clears throat> to a sin that's already been forgiven? When, when something goes wrong, do you go back and you think about, uh, well, it's because I've done this or I've done that or, or whatever it may be. You, a child of God, born again forgiven of all of your sin. Do you go back to a sin and say, well, I think this must be the reason that this particular thing happened. Do you live under that guilt? Do you examine yourself in light of that guilt or do you examine yourself in light of God's grace? In 2001, Tim Gagline began to run the White House Office of Public Liaison. It provided him daily access to President George W. Bush, daily access. All of that ended abruptly on February the 29th, 2008. A well-known <clears throat> blogger uncovered that some of Gagline's published articles, that is 27 of 39 of his written pieces, had been plagiarized. And when the facts came out <clears throat> by mid-afternoon the next day, Gagline's career in the White House was over. He was done. Although Gagline was devastated, what happened next really shocked him. It was an example of God's providence and God's mercy. Gagline was called to the Oval Office. He was asked to come to the White House and to come to the Oval Office and speak to President George W. Bush. And once inside the Oval Office, Gagline shut the door and he turned to the president and he said, I owe you, and, and before he could get those words out, President Bush said, Tim, you are forgiven. Now, <clears throat> he, he was speechless. And he tried to speak again. And he said, but sir. And the president interrupted him again. <clears throat> and he said, stop. I have known grace and mercy in my life. And Tim, you are forgiven. Look, a lot of times, whenever we face difficulty and we look back and we say, well, it's because of this or this or this, a lot of times we live under guilt that is already forgiven. May a difficulty come as a result of some seed that you have sown earlier in your life? Yes, it certainly may. But I will tell you this. If you've been forgiven of your sin, if you have been saved by the grace of God, you must not and should not live under the guilt of that sin, but simply understand that in the grace of God, you have been forgiven. And <clears throat> whatever has taken place, God said, all right, I'm going to go ahead and allow this particular thing to take place. 
Sometimes we find ourselves in a time of crisis and we examine our own lives. And whenever we do that, we should remember that we are forgiven and we should do as the man of God did, and that is entreat the Lord or entreat God. Elijah does what any believer should do when faced with a crisis. He entreated or petitioned God. Now, I think that his prayer is bold. Let's remember the scene again. This child is dead. This child is, is not real sick. This child is dead. There's no more breath left in the child. The child is dead. The mother is in deep mourning, blaming herself, believing that, that somehow or another that God has just exacted his judgment upon her because of the way that she had been and what she had done. And, and she is feeling extraordinarily uh, guilty about this. And then <clears throat> Elijah comes in and he prays a prayer or he prepares to pray a prayer that is simply beyond imagination. Verse 19 again, and he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. Now there's your prayer right there. First of all, he did something that I would call bold, really bold action. When someone is going through a God-sized crisis, it's risky to offer to be a go-between. It's risky to be, in fact, there are a lot of times when, when people are talking to you about something that's really hard in their life, really difficult in their life, and you feel somehow or another duty-bound to offer a response to them and some sort of a comfort to them. And when you do, after you, as soon as you say it, you realize that what you said was empty because you have no concept of what they're going through, and you have no ability <clears throat> to help what they are going through. Well, it was an amazing thing that Elijah offered himself to be a go-between. And here's something else that Elijah did. He took the child from the mother's arms. Now, you have to know that the child was small enough to be carried in his mother's arms. Now, I don't know how old that would have been. I don't think it would have been a teenager. I don't really think it would have been a, a boy of age 10 or, <clears throat> or 11. I think this had to be a, a younger child. I don't know how old the child was, but was young enough and small enough to be carried in <clears throat> the mother's arms. And here's what he did. This is what was really bold. He took the child from the mother. Now, can you imagine the grieving, clutching weeping woman that had hold of that child and he took the child from her mother not only did he take the child from her mother 
but he disappeared with the child. He, in my mind's eye, went outside of the door, the front door, and walked up an exterior steps and walked into a room where they had given him a place to stay. That is Elijah. They had given him a place to stay. Now the woman is downstairs grieving. And Elijah now has taken this child out of the woman's presence. And he's taken the child up to his own chamber. And he's now laid this child out across the bed. <clears throat> it was a, a sense of boldness that is hard to imagine. And he clearly gave the mother some kind of assurance that everything was going to be fine and he was going to pray for this child and this child would be okay. And for some reason, the mother who was grieving over her own sin, blaming herself, thinking that, that the man of God had somehow or another brought this, this issue to their home, the, the mother uh, surrendered the child to Elijah. And Elijah took the child and did as we've said. And his bold action then gave way to a bold prayer. James said to Elijah that, or of Elijah, that his prayers were effective and fervent. And you can see the fervency of the prayer that he offered. First of all, he gives petition. Elijah prayed for the woman's burden and the child's life. When he went up there to pray, he had two things in mind. I'm going to pray for the burden of that grieving mother, and I'm going to pray for the child, for the child to live. And he went straight to the heart of the request. Had it, had it been most of us, we would have been hesitant to pray so boldly. Had it been most of us, we would have been hesitant to act so boldly. Had it been most of us, we would have skirted around the issue and tried to pray something that sounded like I, we were praying <clears throat> for the need, but not Elijah. Elijah went right to the heart of it. Here's what we like to do. We like to pray safe prayers. We like to pray and <clears throat> ask God to do something that we know will already happen. Oh, dear Lord, let that light turn green. And eventually the light turns green. Oh, Lord, give me a parking space. And eventually we drive across the street into another parking lot and find a parking space. We pray for things <clears throat> that we know are going to happen. I think, here's what I think. And this, and, and you know, uh, I, I can say things now, I guess, that I couldn't say before. Because, I mean, what are you going to do, fire me? And, uh, <clears throat> but here's what I think. For our guest, I'm retiring uh, in a couple of months. May the 21st is my last sermon to preach here on a Sunday morning. Uh, <clears throat> but I, I think we like the exercise of prayer, but not the risk of prayer. We like to pray to say that we've prayed, but we don't want to lay ourselves out across the dead body and pray for life to return or anything like that. I remember being on a cruise. Uh, it was a, a Christian-themed cruise. And, and <clears throat> Jan and I were on a cruise. It was several years ago. 
And my friend Bobby Welch was uh, scheduled to uh, bring a message in the main meeting room. And uh, we had been warned of heavy seas. I'll tell you how bad it was. Uh, people, as they were walking in the interior hallways, they were going back and forth, hitting the walls back and forth. If you <clears throat> decided to take the stairs, there literally were barf bags hanging at every section of the railing. Uh, it was it was pretty pretty bad <clears throat> seas. Um, as Brother Bobby and Jan and I went to hear, hear Bobby preach, <clears throat> and as Brother Bobby stepped forward and then sideways and then backward and then forward, as, as he did that, he asked that we all pray. He stopped it. I, I remember, I remember, Jan, you remember this. And I mean, this, this thing was pitching and rolling and carrying on. And he asked that we all pray. And he said, I'm going to pray that God will calm the sea. And he began to pray, not a safe prayer, but a bold prayer. He's sitting in this, we're sitting in this room with a lot of people listening to him preach. And this this place uh, had more rock and roll in it than Chuck Berry. And and going <clears throat> all over the place, and he began to pray, and he asked God to calm the sea. Now, I remember this. <clears throat> I remember <clears throat> that there were people who laughed a little bit as he was praying. I don't think they were laughing at him. I just think they were laughing at the irony of the moment, because this, I mean, the sea was tossing. And he was holding on to a pole to pray. And I, I remember that there were some snickers in the crowd, but not me. I wasn't one of them. I was interested in how a bold prayer like that would work out because this was not a safe prayer. This wasn't, but thy will be done prayer. This was a bold prayer. Asking for instant results. Now, do you know what happened? The seas calmed. That's what happened. They literally calmed. I believe that he expected the seas to calm. Most of us, when we pray, we don't expect it. We don't expect the answer. My son Nathan, years ago, was uh, deer hunting. And he was in a tree stand and he was sitting there and it was just getting late in the day. And and he was really, really cold and hunting over in Greensboro. And he was sitting there and his head was down and he... He told me, he said, Dad, I just prayed. And I said, Lord, let me just see a buck. And Nathan lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and he saw what he thought were sticks blowing through the sage grass. And then he realized 
<clears throat> that it was a buck. You know what Nathan's response was? Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Mm-mm. No way. <laughs> and that buck stepped out and he shot it. And it was an 18-point buck. I remember telling Aubrey Mayo about that. And Aubrey said, you need to tell him to give his gun away now. Because he'll never experience that again. But most of us pray like that. Most of us pray not really expecting. We fail to get big answers because we don't pray big prayers. Jesus gives us some good words about praying and believing in the prayers that we pray. Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. John 16, 24. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. James wrote that we have not <clears throat> because we ask not. And, and as James said of Elijah, Elijah prayed with passion. In the Bible, we're not, <clears throat> it was not unusual when somebody who was praying for the healing of another actually touched the other person. Jesus gave an example of this in Matthew 8, 3, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And as Elijah prayed for the healing of the child, he stretched out on top of the dead body of the child. He dedicated himself fully to prayer. He, I, I picture it like this. I picture that he lays the child out and he lays across the child kneeling beside the bed. He lays across the child and <clears throat> he intercedes on behalf of the mother and on behalf of the child. And his prayer of passion became a prayer of persistence. Knowing the importance of persistence in prayer, Elijah prayed three times for the child's healing. He prayed multiple times. The persistence was not an indication of a lack of faith, but an indication of persistence. God, I know that you can heal this child. I know that you can bring this child back to life. I realize how unlikely it is, but I know who you are. Bring the life back to this child. That bold prayer was followed up by bold faith. Do you remember what Jesus said? Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Elijah had mustard seed faith. He prayed, and the rain stopped, and when he prayed again, the rains returned. Now he prays for the life to return to this child. And I have no doubt that he had had a mountain stood in his way that he would have prayed and that mountain would have been removed. Now let me ask you a question. Where and what is the mountain in your life? You're all standing before a mountain right now. You're standing before one. 
There's something that is blocking your way. There's something that is, has your life messed up, that has your confidence shaken. Maybe you are at that heartache yourself, but you're in the shadow of it. Somebody for whom you pray a lot or you love a lot is really in that time of heartache and you're in the shadow of it. Or you know that there's a heartache on the way. What happens when we pray the bold prayer of Elijah? What happens when instead of fearing faith, we embrace faith? The reason that God gives us examples in Scripture is to embolden our faith. The reason we read the Bible is so that we will be instructed, but also to embolden our faith. I've mentioned that James said that Elijah was a great man of passionate faith and prayer. Let me read you what James said specifically. James five sixteen. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, you can take away a lot of things there, but I'll tell you one thing you need to take away is that Elijah was like you and me. That's exactly what the Bible said. Elijah was like us. We don't think that way. We think that, that Bible heroes could leap tall buildings at a single bound, were faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive. We believe that, that biblical heroes had x-ray vision. We believe that they, they had uh, arms of steel. We believe that they were superhuman and they were not like us. But James specifically said, I want you to know, Elijah was exactly like you. Just like you and just like me. In every way he was human. In every way he had human frailty. Then what was the difference? The difference was that he was willing to pray and to pray boldly. Not safety net praying, but bold prayer. 1 Kings seventeen twenty two again, our text. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. Get that. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Give you three things and we're done. First of all, God hears the prayer. God listens. God listens to prayer. He hears. Secondly, God gives answers. God listens and God gives. And thirdly, God gets the glory. I do not believe in faith healing, but I believe in healing faith. I do not believe in name it and claim it praying, 
But I believe that we can pray and believe and God will answer. That's exactly what happened here. Elijah wasn't a faith healer. Elijah was a prayer warrior. In his book, Beyond Jabez, Bruce Wilkinson shares the story of an old African woman who demonstrated faith in God's power to provide. She lived in a tiny mud hut, but she had taken the responsibility of caring for 56 orphans. A small group of Wilkinson's Dream for Africa volunteers had arrived in the grandmother's native Swaziland to plant gardens. On their final day of their visit, they came upon her tiny home, surrounded by the many children in her care. And around that home, there were a number of little tiny gardens that had been dug up all around the hut. Oddly enough, there wasn't a single plant growing in any of those gardens. The volunteers learned that earlier in the same day, the woman had told the children to dig lots of gardens. And when the children asked her why, because they had no seeds nor money to buy seeds, she responded, last night I asked God to send someone to plant gardens for us. We must be ready for them when they come. Wilkinson's volunteers had come with hundreds of seedlings ready to plant. God sent them to the very place where one of his servants had begged for his intervening hand. And the faithful grandmother and her children were ready when the answer came. I ask you this question today. Are you praying a bold prayer? Are you ready for the answer to come?